Gary Adio is a mentor that's poured into my life in such rich and impactful ways that I struggle to understand how he does it for so many other people too. He came into my life as a Bible study leader when my husband and I first met and has since been such an incredible friend to our entire family, guiding us in spiritual matters, helping with parenting questions, and acting as a sounding board for some of life's biggest decisions. If I can't play this game at 22 or 23, when you're in the minor leagues, you only have one goal, and that's to make it to the major leagues. Mm you can do better than this. So I want you, what's your major? And I told him, he says, I want you to go into sales and I want you to come to work for me and I'll pay you $300 a week. I'm afraid you're gonna kill yourself being an electrician. <laughs> so I want my customers, if at all possible, to become my friends. Mm-hmm. Because I figured if they can trust me, they can sleep at night, mm-hmm. giving me work to do for them. Uh, I learned right away that in, in sales, you need to be a good listener. So I was always on the road, out seeing people in person. I would have three and a half hour commutes each day and it did take a toll on me. So after 36 years, I had heart issues where I needed to get a pacemaker. What was challenging for me is the direction they were going in was something that they really believed in. When you make changes like that, you know, you have to have the right players. You have to have the right people for the direction that you want to go. And this is the fourth type of job I've had in my lifetime. And every single one of them, I've had to learn on the job training. Three girls in that life group came to me and said, we're leaving this life group as much as we love it because the male life group leader is not defending us. And we feel very vulnerable and very unsafe. I remember this guy coming in my office with an attitude and giving me a lot of static back and no humility. And that was the toughest thing to do because I always was about giving people second chances. I'm always looking for people that that, that demonstrate humility. I'm looking for guys that will respect their teammates and encourage their teammates there's a big difference of working hard and working smart. You're gonna have to step on people and over people to get to where you wanna go. And I just never bought that. And I I, I always know that, that God is the rewarder of good. You can't read the scriptures and not be affected by who he is and what he says and what he did. Gary truly has a servant's heart and has touched thousands of lives church members, clients from his printing days, and homeless people he meets and shepherds. Tune in as he shares stories about his start in the minor leagues as a pitcher, having to walk away from his life's dream to play in the MLB, to his fourth career buying land for a regional logger and developer in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce. And I chat with C-suite executives and inspirational leaders so that you can leverage the lessons they share in your own career. You'll hear what makes successful leaders tick, lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories shared about boardroom experiences and tough conversations with colleagues. Full bios, book recommendations, and more details about my guests can be found at mentordna.io. Thanks for tuning in. Well, my first job started when I was a lot younger. Um, I was an only child and my dad said, you need a nice bike because you're gonna be doing a paper route. And that was an amazing thing at a young age because I would have to get up at 5.30 in the morning and go down and pick up, he would take me down to pick up the papers and then we would have to fold them and put rubber bands around them. And he would help me load up my bike and then uh, had a big pouch like that carried lots of papers. And uh, he would say, see you later, son, I'm going home and (laughs) you know the way back. And I would go out, I had a route, I think it was about 40 people um, that I would have to deliver to. Sundays were my most dreaded day because the paper was much bigger and thicker. So folding and carrying those was interesting. Got away from a lot of dogs. One day got bit by a dog doing my route, and that kind of slowed me down. But 
it was a good learning lesson to be a little bit more alert when I'm riding my bike because there's <laughs> dogs everywhere. But I um, really enjoyed that. And that would that would have been my first job. And I can't remember what age I was, but it, I was very young. You know, what's so interesting is that a majority of my podcast guests started with paper roots. Isn't that weird? It's a, it's a weird, yeah. common theme. I think it's weird because now we don't have papers. I think it had to do with the the parent generation hmm. back in that day where it was like, you're not just going to sit around, you know, you're not going to just watch TV. You're going to do something creative and learn how to do stuff at a young age. And so I didn't like it at first. And then I, I really appreciated what my dad did in my mom and turning me loose on that. I got to know a lot of people and I always liked people even at a young age. So it was great. And so then you also had to go around and collect money and everything, right? Yeah, that was interesting. I'd have to bring my dad with me at times because <laughs> people would just kind of blow it off and say, I don't have it this month, come back next month. And in the first couple months of this career that started, I was not collecting all the monies I needed to and got really far behind. So my dad sat me down, who's a business guy, and said, this is what you need to do, son. And I did that, and he came with me to get all my back payments received. <laughs> um, so you go to the door with a dad who was pretty big, and you knock on the door, and they open the door, and why are you here? And they look at me, and they know. So it worked out really well. <laughs> and so that was your first job. What did you do from there? Well, that was my first job. My second job, um, I loved surfing. I loved the beach. I loved the water. So when I was in high school, um, I remember having to get a job as a sophomore in high school. So 10th, 11th, and 12th grades, I worked at different places. So in 10th grade, my first job, my next job, I should say, was uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, nice. And what I loved about that job uh, was it was swing shift. Back in the day, they called it swing shift for to closing. So I was able to go to the beach during the day and then go to Kentucky Fried Chicken at night, <laughs> exhausted from being out in the sun, sunburned, tired from surfing all day. And then they would hand me all the big pots to wash. Oh, so I was greasy. a dish Yeah. So I was a dishwasher and I graduated up to frying the chicken after that. So that was my next job being at KFC <clears throat> and still eat it this very day. Yeah, we had it yesterday. We did. That's so funny. And then you were also an athlete throughout your high school years. Yes, I was. So you juggled being a full, you know, not a full-time athlete, but you played baseball. I did. Very um, competitive baseball. Mm -hmm. You had a job. You went to school. So you had a job, like summer jobs, or you worked all throughout the school year when you were in high school? I worked throughout the school year in high school, and I had summers off because I played summer baseball. And it was tough because of traveling in different cities and different times for games. Um, I didn't work during the summer, just during the school year. Okay. And then from there, then you went to college. Yes, I did. And did you have jobs in college? So walk me through the rest of it. So in college, I remember, yes, um, I remember going to Cal State Long Beach was where I graduated from and played baseball there. And I did have a job there. I don't know if they're still around anymore, but I worked at a place called Builders Emporium. Oh, yeah, they're still around. Are they still around? And I remember filling out the application, and they only had day jobs that were available. And I, I didn't take a day job because I was still enjoying the beach at that age, too. So I waited till they called me, put my name on a list, and I ended up getting called by Builders Emporium. And I'd worked in the lumber department. And that was really interesting because you got all these hardcore contractors coming in and I didn't know what to tell them. <laughs> when they would ask me questions, I would be stumbling around trying to give them answers. And they knew I didn't know, but they were, they were, it worked out. I always got someone to help me. But uh, yeah, I worked at Builders Emporium in the lumber department, night shift. And then from the Dirt Bags, which is Long Beach State's baseball team. Right. From the dirt bags, then what happened? I mean, you played, you continued playing baseball after college. Yes, I did. I, well, first, first place I went was a junior college first. 
um, went to Cerritos Junior College in Norwalk and played two years there and got a full scholarship to Cal State Long Beach. Okay. And so two years at Cal State Long Beach, I played. And then my senior year at Cal State Long Beach, I got drafted by the Kansas City Royals baseball organization. And I signed a contract with them and went to spring training. Oh my gosh. So walk us through that. Are you prepared to go into pro baseball? How do they prepare you? Do they prepare you for that in in high in college? They I mean, do. You know, I, I was fortunate to play for a very good baseball program. Um, we were not as good as future Long Beach State teams were. They, they got really better, but we were good and I had good coaching, but the best coaching I got to answer your question, preparing me for the major leagues in professional baseball was at Cerritos Junior College. Hmm. Um, he could have coached at any college. He was recruited by all kinds of schools, but he really liked developing high school kids mm -hmm. for two years and preparing them for professional ranks and also college. And so I learned a lot from him. And the funny thing is, I probably learned more from my college coaches than I did in professional baseball, where you wouldn't think it'd be that way, but it really was. So that's how I, that's how you get prepared. You go to the right college with the right program and the right coaching staff. And that's how you get prepped for, for the major leagues. And you had mentioned that last night because you were saying once you get to the majors, they expect you to know what to do and how, how to behave and where to be and all that, right? It is. And, it's true. When I got to minor league ball, I, I saw right away that a lot was expected of each player. They're paying you a contract and you sign with them and they've, they've scouted you, they've recruited you. So by the time you spend with them uh, in the minor league system, they, you don't get, I didn't get, and I didn't see us as players getting a lot of coaching. It was more like understood that you know how to cover first base as a pitcher when the ball's hit to the first baseman and you mm. can't make it to first to get the out. You're supposed to be there, you know, and then you're supposed to know how to bunt as a pitcher. You know, pitchers usually aren't good hitters, so we did a lot of bunting practice. And uh, you're expected to know how to do that when called upon. So, mm. yeah. Interesting. All right, so from the Royals, then what happened? So the Royals, I, I went to spring training in Sarasota, Florida, and I went down there as a signee um, with the Royals out of college. And I had a tremendous minor league time, spring training time, where I had a good, good record. I, I was playing AAA at the time in the minor leagues before we broke camp. And then one cold day in March, the last week of spring training, I remember I was scheduled to pitch second and there was a guy in front of me that was going to pitch the first four innings and I was going to pitch the next three. Um, and in the second inning, he twisted his ankle mm. when he threw the pitch to, the, to, to him, played to the catcher. And my coach says, well, you're in. And it was a cold day, and I was sitting on the bench um, waiting to get, waiting a couple more innings to get ready to play. But I was in immediately, and it was a very critical time. It was the last week of spring training where you have all these organizational scouts there from Kansas City watching all the players. And that was going to be the week that we would break camp, and they would send players out to different cities and different league classifications. So... I, in the third pitch that I threw, I tore my rotator cuff <gasps> um, because I wasn't ready. You know, they said, Oh, you weren't warmed up. I wasn't warmed up. They said, go take as many pitches as you want. And, and I took as many as, you know, I couldn't stand out there all day doing that. So I, we went to play. The umpire said, let's play. And then um, it was a third pitch I threw and I felt this tremendous pain in my shoulder and pitched two more innings with a torn mm. rotator cuff oh because gosh. it was such a critical time um, where they were choosing who's going to go home and who's going to make a team. So I wanted to make a team and oh. I'd had a good spring. And so I didn't say much. I did three innings, but I was in bad shape and went to the trainer and I started getting cortisone shots in my shoulder. This was on a Tuesday. 
and they wanted me to pitch Saturday against another organizational team to see what, how I was doing and where I was going and what was going to happen with me. And I did, and it was horrible. I mean, I got through it all, but I, it wasn't good. And I had to tell them, and I did. And so what they did is they decided to send me home to rehab for the summer and then come back to spring training the following March. Hmm. During that summer, um, I got a letter that said that they had given me an unconditional release. And due to my injury, they didn't feel that I was going to be the same oh. um, the following season. So they were just going to let me go and pay me what they owed me. And that was out. Oh, my goodness. And, I mean, obviously our listeners don't know anything about how tall you are and what, you know, but you're 6'8". Six, 6'7". Six, seven. Six, seven. And you're fast. You had a mean fastball. Let's hear about how fast you pitched because you, you were, you were yeah. dominant in the... I was throwing. I was pitching up to ninety-four miles an hour. I think, I think the highest I ever got in spring training was ninety-five. I was between ninety-three and ninety-four, mm -hmm. which is considered good, and had a couple other good pitches. And uh, yeah, but I just was so disappointed that mm -hmm. that had happened because I was just on the on the cusp of making a higher divisional team, mm -hmm. um, playing with the Triple A people was tremendous it's just one classification under the major leagues and my goal in life was always to play in the major leagues and be a professional baseball player so what do you do from there how do you transition because that's your life dream yeah and now your rotator cuff you just you can't heal to a way that they want it to be healed so i went home um from spring training when i received that letter i was like i'm done you know, if I can't be what I was before, I don't want to do this. And a couple of my friends um, that were playing in, in the major leagues at the time that I knew from playing college ball and in high school ball, I knew these guys. And um, they called me up. They heard of what had happened. And they said, look, at, we know a really good sports medicine doctor. We want you to go to. He does weightlifting, he'll strengthen you, he'll work on your rotator cuff. And at that time, they didn't have a solution for a rotator cuff injury. They did years after that, where there was some, there was two great doctors in Inglewood, um, California, that came up with a surgery that worked for major league players to continue to play mm. when that happened to them. But it wasn't around when I was there. So I went through another year um, of training. And they called me up and said, come up to Cal State Los Angeles. There's a Tiger, a Detroit Tiger scout that works out with us there. And he knows who you are. He's watched you play before. And he's asked us to call you and have you come. And he'll take a look at you. And so it, when I first heard that, I was, I was excited. But then I kept worrying about not being the same, you know, and never maybe being the same again as things were. Um, but I went and he signed me to a contract after working out with me for about four or five weeks. He said, I'm going to sign you and you're going to go to Lakeland, Florida to spring training in March. This wow. was in January. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that part. Okay. So then, yeah. so then what happens? So then I went to Lakeland, um, Florida. So now I'm 22 and probably the oldest pitcher down there that in the classification they started me out as they started me in class a and i was think, i think i was the oldest pitcher in camp there was 80 of us there and when i went they said we're going to keep 40 of you and 40 of you are not going to make it and you're going to go back home but anyway so i knew a little bit about what spring training was like from the year before with kansas city so I worked out hard during the winter, signed, and when I got down there, I was really in good shape. And it really got strange what happened. I was down there. You're there about six, seven weeks in spring training before you break for camp where you're going, what city and classification you're going to play. And I was there for that time, and it got into about the fourth week, and I only pitched one time in four weeks. So I went to my coach and I asked him and um, he said to me, um, we're not worried about you. We have all the information from Kansas City of what you can do. You've had an arm injury. We don't want you to play a lot. But it seemed weird to me because I still had to make a team. Wow. You know, you have to be competitive to get chosen on a team. And 
And so we get to the sixth week and I went back in the office and said, I've only played once. I think I pitched three innings in seven weeks. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to send you home and you're going to come back in June and you're going to play with the high school kids. Rookie ball. So rookie ball classification is all high school guys. Class A and above is when you get high school and college mixed. But this was Spartanburg, South Carolina. Hmm. I was going to go there and play in the Carolina League for Detroit. And so I went home and disappointed again and just felt like, I don't think I want to do this. I'm 22, going to be 23. I'm playing with 17 and 18-year-old kids. You know, and it, and I didn't feel that I was above that or or they were beneath me. It was more like, if I can't play this game at 22 or 23 and I don't look like I have a chance, I didn't want to hang around in the minor leagues for years, wasting time. And when you're in the minor leagues, you only have one goal, and that's to make it to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to just hang around the minors and that was my life, you know, as I was getting older. So I didn't, I wrote them a letter and told them I wasn't coming to camp and they were fine with it and they gave me a release. Okay, wow. And at that time, you had met your wife. Now I'm flying back home. What's it, a five and a half hour flight from Florida to to Orange County Airport. And so I'm flying home and I thought, you know, I'm I'm not gonna really do this. I'm not gonna go back. I made up my mind. Mm. And I had been dating this girl for about, funny thing is, about three or four weeks. And so here I am on the plane on a night flight coming back to L.A. to L.A. to or I think it was Orange County. No, it was L.A. County. I'm sorry. From Florida direct to L.A. And I'm already mapping out my strategy of what's next. So I was talking to myself, having this nice evaluation talk going on. (laughs) And I said, what are you going to do with your life? You're one class, you're one four unit lab class short of getting your degree. And you met this wonderful lady. What are you going to do? And about 10 minutes later, I said, I'm going to go home and propose to my wife and get married and I'm going to go to school and get my four unit lab class done and get out in the business world and start a family. And was that Lucy? That was Lucy. Oh, so you had met her. Yeah, I had met her before prior. Oh my, okay. To be in a way. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. so you decided on the plane. Decided on the plane. I had five and a half hours to think. And so it was the longest five and a half hours <laughs> ever, but I The first time was a major disappointment with the injury. The second time was, you know, I think it's time Mm -hmm. not to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you got married. And then so how did you shift into whatever was next? Well, this is kind of a funny story. So next I she would come to class with me at night. And I had a biology lab class (laughs) that I had to take to get my degree in public relations marketing at a Cal State Long Beach. So she'd come to class. The teacher would let her sit there with me. I went through that and remarkably passed. I don't know how I passed. I'd been out of school for a while, it felt like. But passed, got my degree, got a Bachelor of Arts in Marketing and Public Relations. That was the name of the major. And um, we got married and we moved to a little town called Hawaiian Gardens. Yeah. And I think the reason why my wife said we moved to Hawaiian Gardens is because she loved the name so much, even though it was not a really great area. (laughs) So here we are in a little bachelor's apartment. So what I did next was my cousin had a electrician, electrical company. And he said, I need, why don't you learn a trade? So granted, here I am an athlete my whole life. Now I'm going to learn electricity. You know, it seems, seems crazy. He goes, this is what you're going to do. You're going to dig ditches and we're going to run conduit through the ditches and hook them up. We first job we did was at a park and, we had to put all these lights in for baseball fields and I would dig all the ditches with a couple guys and then run the conduit, put wiring in there. And we did that. Then he sent me to a factory that he was remodeling and <laughs> up on a high lift in the summer when it's 90 degrees and you're up on a high lift inside of a factory and I'm changing lights down and got shocked a few times. Oh my and gosh. So, you know, it was just a crazy 
thing to do, but I needed work because I was married. And I think, I think I was making $180 a week at the time. And, uh, but we were happy in our little Hawaiian gardens bachelor apartment and did that for about a year. And then all of a sudden my wife's dad came to me one weekend, talked to us and said, look at, you can do better than this. So I want you, what's your major? And I told him, he says, I want you to go into sales and I want you to come to work for me and I'll pay you $300 a week. And I'm afraid you're going to kill yourself being an electrician. <laughs> so it sounded great to me. And um, the night that he came over, we didn't have a lot of food on the table with $180 a week. And the rent, I think, was 160 a month. So we got through, but... He says, you got to start with me. Just give your cousin notice, give him a two-week notice and come to work for me in L.A. Wow. And so I remember that started a long career. So what what type of sales? He ran a printing business. He ran a printing business that also did typesetting. And for most people, typesetting is an interesting word because a lot of people don't even know what that is. If you're a designer at all, a graphic designer, or you are a person that learned the computer, the Mac computer, you would, if you were going to do a story, you would type all, every sentence, every line, and that's called typesetting. So you would be doing all that. Well, what we did is back in the day is we did some printing, but we did typesetting also. So it was a combination company. And we would supply graphic designers would type on big sheets of paper that a graphic designer would cut out and glue down on boards to give to a printer. So we were, we did a lot of that and I did a lot of that for him. I didn't know anything about it. And I lived in Orange County my whole life and his company was downtown Los Angeles. So here I am driving all around and don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing, don't know what I'm selling. So it was a play, It was definitely a job that it was on the job training, and mm-hmm. I stayed there 22 years. Wow! And you, your clients were some of the biggest brands out there. They were. I was able to. There's all kinds of different types and brands of work back in the day, and I chose to get into the corporation financial side of their business, which would have been their corporate communications departments. And those would be the people that were responsible for brochures, quarterly reports to shareholders, annual reports. So I got, I wanted to get into something where it was a lucrative market and they had to put those pieces out according to the SEC every year. So I went immediately into the financial corporation work. And that was my work that I did for the rest of my life in the graphic arts business. Right. And so you would schlep from Orange County to LA yes, and then into Culver City yes, for 22 years, which probably nearly killed you. Yes, it did. But you were really, really good. And what I want the listeners to know is you are the unassuming salesperson. You're not one of these, hey, let me give you a PowerPoint presentation. You get to know people. And that's why I want to have you on this podcast is you really care about people and that's how you sell. Exactly. You're a a natural, you just love people. I do. And I just felt that my approach in sales, because I know the kind of people that you're talking about, I worked with those types on the different salespeople on our sales forces that we all work together in a company. And I saw that and I saw how it worked with some, but it didn't work with many. And so my whole approach was, I want my customers, if at all possible, to become my friends. Mm -hmm. Because... I figured if they can trust me, they can sleep at night, Mm -hmm. giving me work to do for them. And that's how I started just being myself and soft sell type of approach and, and just got to know people. And and that's how my life went from that point on. Mm -hmm. So we'll probably loop back to a couple of questions that I have about that. But from there, so you're 22 years in. Why did you stop doing that? What happened? Well, uh, I worked for my father-in-law, which was a great man, and my wife's dad. And he he just gave me an opportunity back from the old days of being an electrician and said, hey, you got to do it yourself. And what he did is he said to me, I believe so much in you because 
you know, I just know that with who you are, you're going to do well in this business. And then he proceeded to give me a list of people that left the company and didn't buy our product anymore and said, here's your sales list. Go find out why they left. And, and that's how I started. And that was really the best way to start because I really got to get in and become a good listener. Uh, I learned right away that in, in sales, you need to be a good listener, not a good talker. And so I would listen, 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 and then I would take notes of the things our company did to make them leave and go somewhere else. And, and little by little, being an athlete and being competitive, I loved the challenge of getting those people back mm. to our company and got a lot of them back. And there's a lot that I didn't. I guess there was some damage that was done that wasn't good. But anyway, that's how I kind of got started in my approach to dealing with people. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, after 22 years, why did you decide to leave or what happened there? Yeah, so what happened there was... My father-in-law owned this business for about 30 years when it was my 22nd year being there. He had been in about eight years prior. He had bought this company with two partners. And so what happened was we had all of the old technology, which was metal metal type, hot type. It was called back in the day where you know we have these massive linotype machines that were made by Gutenberg, you know, years ago and remodified and re-improved as time went on. And so everybody in the typesetting business started with that old equipment, but then the computers came out and now it's becoming computerized everything and no longer the, the metal type that was just so kind of archaic and outdated at the time, but they didn't have a lot of money to switch over to the new equipment. So it took a while for us to get there. So I was competing against companies that had all the computerized latest equipment and we didn't. But what had happened is we took so long to get into it. All of our customers went out, they were buying from us and bought their own equipment and did their own work. Mm. So they didn't need us anymore. So good ride of 22 years and then it was going to end uh, based on technology. I see. I see. And so then how did you transition from there? What happened? Well, the next process after typesetting, we did a little bit of printing at our company with my father-in-law, not very much, mostly type, but we would do some printing. He said, I'm closing my company down. We're not going to make it. And so I'm going to, I've got you a job at a printing company that he knew the owners. Mm and said, you should give this guy a try and went to work there Okay. and got into the, now I'm just a full scale printer, no longer in typesetting at all. And so typesetting for our younger listeners is basically what Ben Franklin, you know, invented way back in the day, right? Where you're actually right. putting yeah. letters together made out of metal, made out of metal and you're laying it all out so that then the ink runs like basically those metal pieces run across the paper there. It's like stamped in ink and yeah. then it's run across the paper. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And then I take those <laughs> sheets of paper and I give them to designers and they're 12 by 18 size sheets that they cut the columns out and they put them on, on boards and they hand those to a printer. Like I was saying before. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so pretty that, archaic. Yeah. It's very archaic. So now if you're living in a digitized world, like that's, unfathomable like my kids right now can print a book on their own without having to think about any of that everybody can right yeah all right so you go to work for this other printer yes i was there i worked for them for about seven years and the problem that i had was i had a a type of clients but i was working at a b printer so i had these really how should i say it upper echelon design firms that I was working with in advertising agencies. And I was trying to do their work um, at a company that wasn't as good as the very last printing company I worked at. I worked at three companies and the second one got better than the first, but the last one got better than both. And so all of my relationships from the typesetting days in 22 years that I had made they already had their printing contacts because I was in type and they're, they're doing type and printing mm. as a design firm, designing catalogs, brochures, ads, posters. So by the time I'm in the printing business and I would go and speak with them, they'd say, hey, there's like four people in front of you 
but because we're friends, I'm really, you know, I want to give you a chance. So then I worked, let me see, another five years with, with another printer. And so I just always had my clientele from 22 years prior. Right. And you took them with you. I just time. took them with me wherever I went and, and would try to earn their business and, and, and do, do a good job for them. But I would imagine after almost 30 years of, of commuting from Orange County to L.A., that takes a toll. It takes Definitely. a toll on your health, yes. your physical health, your mental health, your family life. Yes. So what happened there? So what happened there is I went another six years. So I was 36 years in the type and printing business combined. All my time in Los Angeles was about 36 years. Wow. And so my commutes... I always loved Orange County, always loved the beach. So my commutes were from Newport Beach to L.A. Um, for the first job, then Newport Beach to Alhambra for the second job. The next printer was in Long Beach. And then the last printer that I enjoyed the most was in Culver City. So I was always on the road, out seeing people in person meeting with people, doing appointments. So I was in the car all day long. And to reply to what you're saying, I would have three and a half hour commutes each day. So it would be an hour in the morning to get to work from Newport to wherever I was working, and then two and a half hours to get home because of the wonderful 405. Yeah. Um, and it did take a toll on me. So after 36 years, I had um, some heart issues where I needed to get a pacemaker because my heart rhythms weren't right. And, and my doctor, actually my doctor said to me, what's your boss's name? I'm going to call him and tell him you can't do this anymore based on your health. I said, no, you can't do that. He says, well, I'm going to. Mm. And so I had gone as far as I could. And after 36 years, had some heart issues, um, got a pacemaker put in and then uh, started to have some high blood pressure issues kind of all runs together. And then I just started doing a program to get better out of all of that. Right. And that is sort of when we met is I remember my husband and I had started going to, we, we started dating and we started going to life group together uh-huh. and you were our life group leaders. That's right. And I remember that was sort of the time where you were contemplating I need to stop this commute situation. Right. And I remember then that we then got engaged and we said, we want Gary to marry us, to be mm-hmm. our pastor. Right. And we encouraged you, invited you to be our pastor to do that. And I remember at our wedding, you were up there. We got married in Vegas mm-hmm. and you were up there and you did a beautiful ceremony. And what was perfect was that my husband and I are both short and you're tall. So everyone could see all three of us. Usually we go to a wedding. <laughs> you can't see the pastor past the husband and wife. But because we're yeah. short and you're really tall, everyone could see you. And I remember then taking that DVD from mm-hmm. the wedding mm-hmm. and I sent it to our church and I said, you need to take a look at this guy because we think he would be a great community pastor. He should be marrying people all the time because he's such <laughs> a great pastor. So is that when you transitioned? I mean, I know it wasn't because of us that you got the job, but yeah. we thought that you would be a fantastic pastor. And much appreciated. That was very nice of you and Graham. And, and I do believe it did help. Um, because I, I believe they asked me about someone in my life group that had reached out to them. So thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't able to do any more what I was doing and being a Christian since I was 28 is when I became a Christian, got saved and accepted the Lord as my savior. So that whole time period from 28 to in my late 50s, I believe. I went and made it known to a couple of pastor friends of mine at the church that I'd really like to see how I can go through a pastoral training and, and, and get on staff there. I liked it. And uh, a couple of guys reached out and helped me with that. And then we just all prayed about it. There's nothing, there was no openings and there was nothing happening. And then one day I got a call from one of the pastors I had been meeting with. And he said, hey, I'm moving up the the food chain and I need someone to take my place and I want you to do it. Well, 
the timing was perfect because I was already having health issues. I had to get out of my job. So um, the timing was perfect. And I went and interviewed and went to work there. Hmm. And what type of pastoral work did you do? Well, I, he, he was the director of life groups. And so, and for our listeners who don't know, that means basically it's a Bible study. Yes. It's a group that you get together with every week. It's men and women, all yes. different ages. And we would come together and we would just do life together. Right. And we would meet in homes and we had a curriculum that our our team would write and give to the leaders of the life group. And they would lead the group. And that's what it, it was just a small community of people. And it was great because like Misha's saying, we could do life together and pray together and deal with issues and have a lot of things in common um, and build communities. And it was tremendous. So I oversaw that for a while. Um, I was on staff there six years and two years as a volunteer. So eight years. And what's interesting about working in the nonprofit. So you went from being an athlete and then shifting gears into working for, you know, family business, then working for bigger, you know, for-profit companies and then shifting into nonprofit. I mean, that's, that's a big change. And I, I know just because I've served on nonprofit boards and I've worked for for-profit companies and it's, it's really different. Mm -hmm. So that mind shift is different of just going from for-profit to nonprofit and, you led a phenomenal team, and at that time, that church was one of the biggest churches. It was really growing. We had, you know, I don't know how many people were going to church, thousands of people. It was, thousands. It was starting to become one of these bigger mega churches. churches. Yeah, it was becoming a mega church. And, you know, you were highly regarded, and the life groups were going well, and all of that. And it was just really fun to see you in that element because you love the Lord. You love leading people, you love people, and people love you. And it was just really neat to see, you know, that side of you. Yeah. And to see you not have to schlep all the way up to L.A. <laughs> and sort of just get your get your mental health back in order and, yeah. and be able to be with your family. Yeah. It was wonderful, and um, I was very thankful and grateful that the Lord opened the door for me to do that. I got to do a lot of great things there. Um for the kingdom that I really enjoyed. I think the, uh, I think the programs are always important in a church, but it was the people that mattered to me and being able to shepherd a large church with other pastors and get in the dirt with people was something that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? And I know this may be a little more challenging to talk about. Yeah. And then, um, so after, eight years, things were shifting in the church and changes were being made, staff changes were being made and structures were being changed and the church was now going to have new leadership and go in a different direction. And for me, I it seems to me like what was challenging for me is the direction they were going in was something that they really believed in and they wanted to do and when you make changes like that you know you have to have the right players you have to have the right people for the direction that you want to go and so anyway it uh there was a bunch of us that got let go we were laid off and uh for specific reasons and that was very difficult for me and my wife we had been in this church for 17 years attending and eight years on staff there. So it was a very challenging time, but, you know, God always shows up in these kind of situations and he's going to have something better for us. And he did. Mm -hmm. And so that led to going back into family business. Yes. And working with one of your sons-in-law, so, I guess is the right way to say. Yeah. So when we lived in a townhouse in Newport Beach in California, which was an awesome place right next to the beach and down the street. And once I had lost my job, I had told my wife, I said, you know, we're going to have to probably sell the house and figure out what we're going to do. What's next? What's next steps? And we put our house on the market and we sold it in three days and got more money than we deserved. Um, people got into bidding wars for the property and it was, it's just a, townhouse. It was nice, but 
outrageous amounts of money back in the day that was Newport properties were going for. So we sold our house and we had to move out in three weeks. So I was packing boxes and taping boxes and taking stuff to the dump in the Goodwill for <laughs> for three weeks. And actually it was the greatest medicine for me after what had happened. I didn't have time to think about what had happened. I had to be out of my house in three weeks. And I remember we had till April 16th, till six o'clock on April 16th. And we pulled away from our house at five, five to six and waved <laughs> goodbye. And we were out of there. And then uh, that was that. And then we had to find a place to go because I was out of work. My wife my wife actually worked for Mish and Graham Pierce, uh, these great friends of ours that we love and cherish. She worked for them as a nanny with their two kids for nine or 10 years, I believe. And so we had one income coming in and I didn't have an income. So we had to figure out quickly what we we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And those were tough times. And uh, for those who know you, you are such a man of deep faith and conviction and what I admire so much about you is that if you see, I mean, you've always been such a guiding light for our family, speaking truth into us. And if we have questions about the Bible or we're not sure about what to do in this parenting situation or mm. relationships, you always have the exact Bible verse, the exact place in the word where we should reference. Mm -hmm. And you are so strongly convicted in that. And you really know the Bible, like you really understand the word and what I so admire about you is that you are not afraid to say to someone and call them out, hey, that's not biblical. That is not truth. Right. And I think for better or worse, I mean, I think I know it's for better, right? But that has gotten you and me probably <laughs> in some <laughs> hot water yeah. at different times in our careers and lives. Yes. And when I've been asked about that before, I just always have the same answer. You know, Jesus is our model. You can't read the scriptures and not be a, be affected by who he is and what he says and what he did. And so he, him being the model, I would always, I always wanted to have that type of behavior and character, whether I was doing printing, typesetting, or pastoring, it didn't matter what I was doing. I just always felt like he's the example that I want to be and follow. And I need to take his characteristics into my life as I live my life daily. Mm -hmm. So you had a couple of years to regroup. You guys did that. And then you had the opportunity to move and go be closer to one of your daughters and your son, sons-in-law. Yes. And you had an opportunity to, again, go back into sales. Mm -hmm. A totally different type of sales. So your son-in-law is uh, very involved and grew up in the timber and lumber and construction business. And mm -hmm. he asked you to join him and do what? So let's explain to the audience because it's, it's, it's something I've never heard of, but you're so good at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, you know, what is this? One, two. This is the fourth job, type of job I've had in my lifetime. And every single one of them I've had to learn on the job training. No one has ever taken me aside and said, <laughs> no training programs. No training programs. You just do this and do that. I think, I, I do believe, and from a pastoral standpoint, I feel that I've been trained by the Lord through the Word, by the Spirit. Yes, to be a pastor, there's things you need to learn when it comes to structure and, and programs and all the things that you do, all the different elements of your job description. But my other three jobs, it was all about you You learn as you do this. So backing up just a minute, I, when we were in California, I was out of work for 17 months and could not find a job, looked into different types of jobs, checked. I had a bucket list of churches I wanted to go to work for and wasn't able to get into any of those. Back in that day, people weren't really hiring in churches. So challenging time for churches financially and and things like that. So uh, my son-in-law did call me one day and uh, and said, hey, you know, got a plan. Um, I found 15 acres up in Washington. He said, I want you and Lucy to fly up here and take a look at what I found. 
And I said, well, that's nice and all, but I'm looking for work down here. And I don't, he says, I'm going to hire you. Wow. Yeah. So I said, well, you don't want your father-in-law working for you. You know, let's just keep it family. And, and he said, no, 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 no. You'll, you'll be perfect for what I need. So to answer your question, what that looked like was he's in the timber business, which means the logging business. So Washington, as you know, is filled with trees and numerous counties of trees everywhere. And I began to learn that trees was a big commodity, had a lot of value to it. And his business pro his business plan was to buy raw land with lots of trees on it. And you would log and harvest the trees and we would sell those to a mill that would give us money for the logs. And then those logs would be shipped to Japan or China or they'd stay local. Um, and with the monies we would get from the logs, so we'd pay the land off. And then if the geographical location was good, he would build a house there and sell the house. So buy land, get money for the trees, pay off the land, build houses, sell the houses. So it's a really good business model. It's become very competitive now, but that's what it was. So my job um, is to go out and talk to landowners, people that own land with trees on them, and ask them if they have any plans for their properties. A lot of properties they're going to give to their children, keep it in the family. Others are tired of paying taxes on the land that don't have any plans, and they just want you to buy it from them. And then there's other people that just want to hold on to the land, but they want money for their trees. And we would, so we would go log their properties and they would remain in ownership of that property. And it's such an interesting business because in Washington, like you said, I mean, if you've never been to Washington state, it is literally trees everywhere. It is so green and is so lush up here as compared to, you know, Southern California, like when I go to Big Bear, in fact, I just told my husband, I will never go to Big Bear or Arrowhead, Arrowhead again. It is so scary because everything up there is dead. Mm -hmm. and the state of California hasn't had a good plan of, plan. yeah, they don't know how to do forest work and all of that. And so one match and that place is just going to probably burn for six months. I mean, yeah. that would be really, really scary up there. And there's one way in and one way out. So yeah. I always tell them, nope, we're not going back up there. If you come up to Washington State, which is where we are now, it is so lush and green. And there's a lot of really great forest management. So I don't know after how many years you cut the trees down, but you thin them out. You make money off those logs and then you replant more trees. We do. And so it's a really nice cycle. So maybe yeah. you can walk through like how big does a tree have to be or how, you know, because you'd also yeah. talked about Christmas tree plans and, you know, there are a yeah. lot of ways to make money off trees. Yes. Trees are, trees are very, very valuable up here. Oregon, Canada, Washington, Idaho. What we do is if we, if I get a project that's just going to be a logging job, let's say Mish owns 10 acres and she wants to take the trees off because she needs money to send her kids to college. I we would work out uh, an agreement. I would tell her roughly how much money she's going to make. And then we would sign a contract and then we would do the actual work. And probably usually we wait about, till springtime to replant. So we would get these 18, 18 inch seedlings, which would be the same species as the trees we took down. Mm -hmm. And then we would put, I think the requirement is 300 trees per acre. Wow. Yeah. And then we have a company that does all the replanting for us. And so you're looking at the first couple of years before you see any change in the property because mm -hmm. it's going to be very rough looking, you know, because timber has been taken out and um, looks like a bomb went off sometimes. But after about two years, these seedlings start to grow and it's going to have to be about a 30, about a 40 year cycle hmm. before they'll really grow back to where they're merchantable again. Wow. Yeah. So that's so interesting. So, yeah. So now we have, I mean, that took a while to get through the whole story, but that's a really fascinating career. And I think you're an amazing leader across all the industries that you've been in. I mean, I've certainly learned so much from you. So now I want to dive into some of these other questions. Okay. What's one thing you have to do every day to start your day? 
Well, I always want to be in the Word first, either before breakfast or after. I don't want to be religious about this. This is what works for me. Get in the Word, um, have some private time in prayer, and then meditate. You know, the Scripture talks to us about not just being hearers of the Word, but doers also. So for me to be a doer of the Word, I need to meditate upon the Scriptures that I'm reading so I know how to take that and apply it to my everyday life and how I'm going to go out and live that day. So I usually do that and then uh, like to work out when I'm being good about it. I like to do brisk, fast walking like my grandson lives next door and we'll walk two to three miles a day, like five days a week, and we'll try to push it more towards the end of that week. So I like to do those kind of things mm, okay. to get to get my day started. And so you've worked, you've had a bunch of different jobs and companies that you've worked for. What's the craziest work situation or the craziest thing that you've seen in a meeting or just something that's happened? I think it was back in the printing days at my last stop there in Culver City. We had a customer come into the, into the shop and the customer mis- mistake me for someone else. They thought this guy they met was me. Oh. His name was Gary, too. Uh-huh. Um, and she only knew Gary. She didn't remember the last name. And her and I had signed this agreement to do this big catalog together for Skechers, I remember. And the other Gary was in the office at the reception desk when she walked in and said, I need to talk to Gary. And he said, well, I'm right here. So she thought that that guy was me. <laughs> and so next thing I know... I'm at work and I see her come a second time. I didn't see her the first time. And the second time when she came in, I saw them in the conference room talking and going over a project. And I walked in the room <laughs> and she said, oh no. <laughs> and she looked at me because she was a new client. I had never seen her. All of our discussions and conversations were done over the phone and by email. She had never seen me before. And she's sitting down giving this beautiful project to this guy named Gary that I was supposed to be doing. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you learn from that? Was he okay with that or what happened? I learned from that that don't talk to people on the phone, get in your car and go see him. (laughs) What's the boldest thing you've said to a colleague or a coworker or a boss? This This one would have been in my pastoral days. I remember telling a life group leader guy who was starting to hit on all the girls in the life group. He's a single guy and the life group, this life group had a lot of pretty girls there. And I remember three girls in that life group came to me and said, we're leaving this life group as much as we love it because the male life group leader is not defending us. And we feel very vulnerable and very unsafe. And so being very protective as someone that oversees a big, a big ministry, I remember this guy coming in my office with an attitude and giving me a lot of static back and no humility. And I was okay with that up to a certain point. And then uh, he continued to speak very rudely to me. And I told him, I said, you're going to have to leave the group. You're no longer going to be in the group. And Got into, he got into this major screaming match with me. I wasn't screaming at him. He was screaming at me. And another pastor had to come in and walk him to the door and, and, and get him to go. But that was the toughest thing to do because I always was about giving people second chances. But this guy was, this guy was not safe in this small setting. And it was my job to protect what was going on there. And, uh, it got really heated, and I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was like something like, you're out of here, and I don't want to hear any more from you, you mm. know, that type of thing. But I remember that distinctly of feeling like if you're passive right now, this is not a good leadership skill. Yeah, you need to protect your flock. Yes. And you have three daughters. So you're and I have three daughters. Ultra protective. So that helped a lot, too. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know about that one. What's the biggest leadership miss you see regularly? Well, the two things that are kind of go hand in hand with me is, first of all, I'm always looking for people that that, that demonstrate humility. 
And if you can get a person that's humble and is a hard worker, you really have a tremendous applicant for whatever position you need. Um, the people that come in that I can sense right away that aren't humble, that's a big turnoff for me. And second of all, if they don't appear to be hard workers, that just immediately makes me think that they're all hung up in their own world and they're not going to be great contributors. So humility and hard work is what I look for. Hmm. And I see both of those traits in you. So for our listeners, <laughs> they probably <laughs> don't know this, but we spend a lot of time with you here in Washington. And in the summers, the sun comes up at five and it doesn't go down till 10. Right. And you are nonstop. I mean, you're keeping up with me. I have a ton of energy. Your wife has a ton of energy, but you're keeping up with both of us and running circles around us, pushing wheelbarrows around and <laughs> putting up fences with me and digging trenches and probably yeah. your old electrician days, digging those trenches yeah. and in the kitchen. You never stop. And you're so humble. Well, thank you. And you are. What advice do you have for your 30-year-old self? Well, I think there's a big difference of working hard and working smart. It was it was good for me to feel like I was working hard, which I did, and I was getting success and having success working hard. But I think looking back at 30, especially in that age group, it had been better for me to work smart. Mm. You know, I I wouldn't say I was a strategist at 30 years old, but as I got old, older, I felt like I got better in strategy where I could do strategy and then work hard at the same time. But I think for me at that age, it was just about working hard, long hours. And now I look back and go, did you really need to work 12 hours that day? Maybe if you had organizational skills that were better, you would have worked nine hours. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would say that. Okay. What's something that you've learned from a mentor that's really stuck with you? It's really funny. My baseball coach, going back to baseball, in junior college at Cerritos, we probably had the best baseball coach in the state of California. Mm. Tremendous winning records. Everybody wanted to play for him. He was like the John Wooden of baseball. What's his name? Wally Kincaid. And he became a Christian later in life. And I saw him, gosh, about two years at a high school reunion he came to, that he was invited to because a lot of my high school athlete friends played for him. We all, and they invited him to come to our high school reunion, even though he was a junior college coach. But he taught me respect. You know, he was the type of guy like, if you're going to be cocky, you're not going to play for me. Hmm. If you're going to be full of yourself, you're going to be on the bench. I'm looking for guys that will respect their teammates and encourage their teammates so when your teammate hasn't had a hit in 20 at-bats, you're going to go encourage him, mm -hmm. that type of thing. I think that really helped me early on with who I am as a person anyway, to always look, look, look out for the other guy and that's yourself. That's a really important one. In team sports and corporate environment and family, yeah. especially the world we're living in now, where everyone says, oh, you're, you're slightly different than I am, therefore I'm canceling you, right? Yeah. We need to respect each other wherever they are. I remember my dad teaching me as a kid, as I started to do well in baseball, I think I started playing baseball when I was nine and really enjoyed it. And, you know, God just gave me skills as a baseball player to do well. And, and I remember my dad, when I was nine or 10 years old, telling me like, it's okay, step over whoever you have to step over to get to the top. Mm. And it just never sat well with me because I wanted to get the top. I wanted to get the top the right way by just working hard and being faithful to what I was doing and who I was playing for. But he was the kind of guy that success meant everything. And I can remember that started about nine. And when I was in high school, I played basketball and baseball in high school. And I remember I did really well in both sports. And so my dad was the happiest with me when my my name was in the headlines of the sports page. And that's how this really started to deepen as I got older, that he just kept wanting me to realize that you might be good and all, but you're gonna have to you're gonna have to step on people and over people to get to where you want to go. And mm -hmm. I just never bought that. And I I I always know that that God is the rewarder of good. 
and God rewards hard work. And so I just took a different road. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you did. You've been such a good example for our kids, too, who love baseball. And they get great coaching from you in the summer summer months and the spring months when we're up here. All right, we're heading into the virtual insanity rapid fire. Okay. <laughs> favorite leadership or business book? My favorite book was a book called Coached by Jesus. And it was written by a man named Alan Nelson. And I've read many books. The, the second book that I really loved was the one by John Wooden. A Game Plan for Life, I believe that was the one that I read. But Coached by Jesus was a mentorship book that would answer many, many questions that a, a person would have from the scriptures of everyday practical living. John Wooden has a, had a book that all coaches use as a mentorship book to their athletes, whichever sport you're in. Favorite pastime? My favorite pastime. I'm too old to surf anymore. <laughs> So that used to, that would have been my number one choice. But I think my favorite pastime is just being with my family and doing fun things with them and watching them enjoy what they're doing. And you've got a big family. Big family. Big family. If you had an entire day without any meetings, what would you do? I think I would do two things. I think I would sleep. <laughs> and then I think the next thing I would do is call up some friends or family members and work on relationships. Yeah, go garden, go for yeah. a walk, go to the beach, because you have beaches here. We do have beaches. What's your favorite vacation spot? I think I enjoyed Maui. I've only been to Maui once, but what I was able to do at Maui in a week was just unbelievable. Just beautiful beaches, as everyone knows. It's listening to this. Just great food. Going to Maui would have been my most favorite right. vacation spot. And finally, favorite quote. This is going to sound funny because I have a lot of them, but I'm going to give you the one that was drummed into my brain in the graphic arts business and printing and typesetting. You're only as good as your last job. That's a really, really good one. Well, Gary, thank you. You're this was, welcome. This was awesome and super fun. Great I, to be with you, Mish. I've known you 16, 17 years and didn't know a lot of these things. How's that possible? <laughs> we spend a lot of time together laughing and I know. making pot stickers. And, well, you're helping us to raise our kids. And, you know, we're around for your grandkids. And it's just so much fun to be a part of your life. And you're a big part of our lives, you and Graham and the kids, your family. Totally family. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for tuning in to Mentor DNA. This is the Mentor DNA podcast, and I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit mentordna.io for more info on my friends and musings I have from our conversations. Stay tuned for another great episode next week. Talk to you soon. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta, and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amor Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmorBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent ya.